So welcome, Michael. We've got a really wonderful interview lined up for everyone today. Um, Michael Kazin, he's a professor of history at Georgetown University and a phenomenal expert on American history and focusing a lot on politics and populism. And so, Michael, maybe you want to explain a little bit about your background and uh, some of your expertise? Sure. Um, I was a political activist on the left, uh, still am in some ways for a long time, beginning late 1960s uh, in the new left, opposing the war in Vietnam, especially, and um, moved into academics in the 70s. And I've written uh, books about populism in American history as a political language, uh, about the 1960s, about history of the American left, uh, biography of William Jennings Bryan, a famous populist uh, politician uh, who ran for president three times. And I'm finishing a biography, right? Excuse me, I'm finishing a history right now of the Democratic Party, which will be out hopefully in early 2022. Um, so, um, and also until recently, I was co editor of uh, Dissent Magazine, which is a, a magazine on the American left, uh, begun in the early 1950s. Uh, it's a uh, what what we call in, in Europe a social democratic uh, magazine, uh, or in, in Canada perhaps, uh, um, but you know it's democratic socialist, and uh, we're um, part of what you might call the realistic left. So um, and and so so I've been writing and uh, uh, advocating uh, for uh, you might say left populist ideas uh, for a long time. It's deep. It's a big history, but maybe briefly, could you walk us through just some of the the history of populism in the U.S. and then we could maybe dive in a little more to kind of the flavors that we have now. Well, populism, uh, in my view, is uh, both a movement which didn't last very long. Uh, it arose in the eighteen eighties and pretty much fell apart by the early twentieth century, uh, and a a language, a way in which. Uh, different kinds of political actors, right, left, and otherwise, talk about uh, the nefarious, immoral, greedy elite on one hand, um, and the moral, virtuous, great majority of the people on the other. Um, so as a language, it's very promiscuous. Uh, it can be used by right and left. It can be used by, say, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump uh, for very different purposes, of course. Um, as a movement, uh, it arose uh, after the Civil War among uh, wage earners, uh, small farmers, especially uh, in the South and the Plain States, who felt they were getting ripped off by uh, Wall Street, by commodities markets, by uh, large corporations, which were smashing labor unions, which were uh, keeping um, prices of commodities very low, so uh, many small farmers could not get out of debt. Um, and this was the populist movement, which uh, spawned a, a political party, a third political party, uh, which began in the early 1890s called the People's Party or the Populists. That's where the term comes from, actually, uh, the adjectival form of the People's Party. And, um, and it uh, did, you know, pretty much pretty well for a third party in American history, which, you know, American, third parties in American history don't do very well uh, uh, in almost every case. But... Uh, they got about uh, 9% of the vote in the presidential election in 1892. They elected uh, a few dozen um, Congress people. They took over the government for a short time of, of, of Colorado and Kansas. Um, and uh, they fused in 1896 with the Democratic Party, which nominated a 
uh, candidate favorable to populism, William James Bryant. But because Bryant lost the presidency, the populists were left uh, having support a losing candidate uh, who was not uh, a populist, uh, was not part of their third party. Um, and they declined pretty quickly after that. But, but a lot of the ideas of the populist party, um, like um, um, having uh, government uh, run the railroads and the telegraph uh, and um, having the banks uh, be more, more severely regulated than they were at the time, uh, more, more, more uh, freedom for labor unions to organize and several other ideas, uh, subsidies for farmers um, to make sure their prices would be, would be higher on a regular basis um, so they could stay in business. These ideas uh, remained popular in many ways and were in different ways incorporated by progressive Democrats and, and Republicans in the early 20th century and continue to be, some of them at least, ideas which people consider themselves to be progressives today or even progressive populists uh, would embrace. Interesting. And so I find that pretty fascinating how it can be a unifier of different spectrums because it's not necessarily like this hardcore conservative or hardcore liberal thing. It's almost like its own entity that floats around the political spectrum and can rise up it, at the same time, which what we have now, we have populism now, but it has very distinct flavors. And so if, if you could separate a little bit for us, what does populism look like today on the left and the right? And maybe if there's any crossover, because it, it doesn't look like there's a lot of crossover, it seems quite divided. But if you could just sure. flesh out what, 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 what's going on today in, in the populism sure. spectrum. Well, what's going on today in some ways, continuation of certain trends in populism that go back um, uh, historically. Populism on the right uh, historically tends to be um, um, you know, spoken, expressed by uh, political leaders and activists who see the people, um, that's the magic word in populism, of course, um, as sort of in the broad middle of American society, uh, entirely white, um, and uh, people who are um, their enemy, their adversary of, the, of, this, of this broad middle of the people, according to people on the right, and this includes Donald Trump and his supporters, I think, are those on the top, um, either a cultural elite or a um, political elite, usually not an economic elite, but sometimes uh, there's a crossover between the political and economic elites, and people at the bottom, uh, especially those of darker skins, uh, people of color, as we call them today. Uh, in the 19th century, that was Chinese immigrants and blacks. Today, it can be recent immigrants, uh, especially from south of the border in the United States, and uh, sometimes poor African-Americans. Uh, um, so, uh, and often uh, those poor African-Americans are from the right seen as, as a criminal class, uh, preying on those in the middle. Um, and sometimes as with immigration, uh, right-wing populists, this is true of Donald Trump, certainly his supporters, uh, see there being kind of a conspiracy between a progressive liberal elite at the top and immigrants at the bottom to drive down the wages and the living standards and, and uh, perhaps eat away at the cultural values of those middle Americans, uh, which is a term Richard Nixon made famous, and the kind of populist rhetoric he used 50 years ago when he was president. Um, so that's a more right-wing populism. Uh, Left-wing populism tends to see the people as the broad, the huge majority, the 99%, as Occupy Wall Street put it, um, several years ago when that movement was uh, had its meteoric rise and fall. Um, and 
uh, that, and, and most uh, left-wing populists see that 99%, that broad majority, you know, they realize this differentiation by race and ethnicity and religion, but they see that as much less important, uh, or immigrant status. So that, so that differentiation is much less important than the fact that um, all these people are being betrayed, ripped off uh, by a greedy economic elite at the top, often called Wall Street or big corporations, big business, different for it. So left-wing populists tend to focus, and this is Bernie Sanders and his supporters do this very much, and Elizabeth Warren to some extent did as well, look at, you know, um, the, the main, the main uh, betrayers of the people's interests are an economic elite. Uh, they spend less time, left-wing populists do, talking about, about culture and race, I think. They realize differences exist, but they want to group the broad majority against economic elite. Um, so the, the, this is a key difference, I think. And you, as I mentioned, you see this, uh, these differences play out um, in, uh, in politics today, where Bernie Sanders is, is you know, arguing that, you know, the billionaires, uh, the billionaire class is, you know, running American politics, especially under, under Republicans, and is uh, doing everything they can to, uh, to smash labor unions, whereas the right-wing populists argue, you know, the real problem is uh, a secular elite which uh, wants to um, do away with the religious liberties of ordinary people uh, and wants to have a rush of, of criminal immigrants, uh, illegals who will uh, take over people's jobs, but also will, um, you know, force people to learn Spanish and, you know, the kind of, this kind of arguments that are very familiar from our politics. Each one in different ways can work into, I think, a, a strong populist message. It seems like there's definitely quite a bit of separation between the sides, but also we're noticing a little bit of overlap from the more radical sectors of like, uh, you're seeing Boogaloo boys joining arms with NFAC, the Not Fucking Around Coalition, and some of these things that on service level you might think are completely opposed, but you're seeing these ideologies joining forces in their unite against government or against the elite do you do you see this trajecting more towards that or is this just an outlier good question i didn't know there's a not fucking around coalition i have to check that out um, yeah it's it's a, in, in just simple terms it's a black militia and so they're they show up at the black lives matter and um yeah there's but, probably should be st probably should be stfu coalition as well uh, <laughs> Be a, lot, be a lot quieter around here if there was one. <laughs> um, well, you know, I think um, I'm not sure uh, these groups would be considered, would, would be defined as populist necessarily, because I'm not sure they're really trying to organize a majority, you know, of the mm. people, mm. Uh, however defined. Um, but certainly um, there's a long tradition in the United States of deep suspicions of government power. Uh, and, and that can take anarchist form. Uh, it can take it can take um, white supremacist form. Uh, you know, you have you know, um, you know people who use violence, uh, like uh, like the Weather Underground on the left in the late sixties, early nineteen seventies, on one hand, and like Timothy McVeigh and the militia movement in the mid nineties. You know, who broke up some of the people broke. You know, uh, blew up the uh, uh, federal building in Oklahoma City, uh, infamous, infamously uh, back then. So, you know, th there's a long suspicion in America of the central government um, only wanting to enrich people in the central government uh, and, um, you know, uh, 
uh, uh, producing a what what Trump called a swamp, you know, where where corruption is not uh, is rife and um, people are just uh, helping themselves to uh, all the good things in life and uh, you know depriving other people of them um, and, and deciding that you know they're going to crack down on anybody they consider to be a criminal or un-American. So you know there's a long tradition of that uh, both on on the left. And so will they with the with the groups on the left and the and the right that you mentioned uh, uh, combine? I think it's unlikely. Uh, First of all, because they tend to, you know, have very different views about race, I think, and and about and about uh, immigration, um, and uh, uh, and also, you know, we're, we're such a partisan country now, and yeah, you know, we've always been pretty partisan with a two-party system. It's not surprising that you have strong partisans, because you know, uh, a victory for one party is a loss for the other one. There's no coalitions, you know, the way you have in many other democratic countries, um, no coalition governments, I should say. Um, but uh, I think now it's it's particularly uh, the the partisanship is particularly is is cultural, you know, very strongly. Of course, people people who who are Democrats are uh, have very little to do with Republicans in their daily life. Uh, in many cases, especially strong Democrats, and that's true of Republicans and Democrats on the other side. So, so unless you have these groups who are equally alienated, uh, equally suspicious, and and are willing to share information and meet together. Uh, whether online or elsewhere, it's pretty hard to imagine them coming together. Because uh, I would, I would assume they would just be they'd be as willing to, to fight one another uh, as they would to fight, you know, the the government power that they both hate. There's clearly something happening in the U.S., and it's difficult to put a firm finger on and say this is where we're heading. I mean, that, that, that's a fool's game to try to pin down where where we're going with all this exactly. But what we're trying to do is tease apart: is this is just is this a wave in history of more populism and inequality and unrest and we kind of get back to normal at some point and this will be just a period we study or is this a declining of the US empire and there's there's bigger things at play that are more existential as a threat and so what one thing that i definitely wonder about is you see a more decentralized change in dissent and revolution and and I'll frame it like it used to be a little more of um, us versus them here versus there in oversimplistic terms like the Civil War. It, it's a very complex time, very complex situation, but it was it was fairly clearly defined geographically. Um, and the tribe was here, another tribe was here. Whereas now with social media and the echo chamber effect, we're finding our ideological tribe more online. So we're very centralized, but in a decentralized manner. And so it seems to be showing up as increased regional instability, terrorism, economic weakness due to loosely organized yet extremely passionate groups. Do you see this trajectory perhaps being a danger for the U.S. Um, in our current environment and going forward? Well, um, we'll see. It depends. Uh, <laughs> is that I get to explain the past. I don't have to predict the future. But <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like to joke. I get to, to predict the future, and I'm always right. Uh, but I, I get to, sorry, I get to predict the past, and I'm always right. Um, <laughs> the future. Um, but uh, you know, I, I do think uh, this is a longer discussion than you know you want to want to have right now, probably. But I do I do think that that the U.S. is probably in in a long gradual decline uh, as an empire. Uh, I do think it has been an empire, though mostly an informal one, uh, as opposed to the older 
European and uh, Japanese and other empires. Um, and that does produce um, a lot of instability, obviously, in our politics and and a lot of fear on, on, on all sides, you know, of the other. Uh, um, because whether people are aware of it consciously or not, you know, um, people don't really expect things to get better, you know, in the future, um, unless you are, you know, really well situated in every way. And that's, uh, you know, even someone like me who's a well-paid college professor, I don't, you know, I'll retire soon. I'm not sure my, my children, you know, who are, who are, you know, in the thirties, life was going to be much better for them, you know? So, uh, and that has not been true. Most times in American history, America was really based on the, on the ideal of progress in many ways. Um, and if progress doesn't happen, in fact, we have a regression instead, then that's a serious problem. In terms of the other question you asked about, um, well, obviously social media does allow you to nationalize everything, uh, internationalize everything in that sense too. Uh, you know, you can watch demonstrations that are happening in Hong Kong right now, if you want to anytime, you know, uh, for example, as long as the Chinese government doesn't take <laughs> people's cell phones away. Um, but um, I do think that the regional um, question is still with us. I mean, you see this in the presidential election, for example, where, where um, Biden won because he got big majorities in cities and, and close in suburbs, but but uh, he lost in almost every rural area in the country. I think every rural area in the country, except probably uh, some parts of the Mississippi Delta, which are majority black populations. Um, but any place where there's a rural population, which is mostly white, and a lot of places actually where, uh, like like a county um, in North Carolina, I just read about uh, where um, a lot of people are, are Native American. They voted for Trump too, in part because rural people are now sharing a sort of a, a shared um, resentment of, of urban elites and and, um, and urban liberals as they see them. So, um, you know, I think uh, uh, former Speaker of the House uh, representatives, uh, Thomas Tip O'Neill said, all politics is local. I don't think that's true. It's never been true. Um, obviously, as you say, it was not true in the Civil War, but uh, nevertheless, a lot of it still matters because people do still trust people they know uh, and they live around and work with when they think about politics much more than I think someone they've seen on television now. Obviously, people love Donald Trump, love him from all kinds of backgrounds. But if they were in a, in a place like D.C. where I live, where Donald Trump got 5% of the vote, um, you know, they're less likely to know other people who voted for Donald Trump. And so that has a, that has a different that makes a difference, too, in, in what their politics is and how their politics develop. You know, um, you know, most people don't want to have to fight people they love, people they work with, their neighbors politically, you know, uh, they'd rather go with the flow. Um, and so, um, you know, that they, that's still true. It was true in the Civil War, uh, uh, in which, you know, most people fought for Confederacy, did not own slaves, uh, but they fought for the slaveocracy anyway. And many people in the North who fought for the Union were quite racist, but they were willing to support the Union because that's what all their neighbors were doing. Um, and that seemed to be because of that, that they were convinced it was in their self-interest. So I think that in many ways is still true. There's still a continuity there. Well, you said initially your belief that the U.S. is declining as an empire. As, as a well-studied and, and versed historian, what is informing that observation or belief of yours? Like, how did you arrive yeah. there? Well, first of all, clearly in terms of um, economic power, uh, it's declined um, in relationship to the European Union, 
which as a whole um, has is is superior economically to the U.S. to China, which if it hasn't passed the U.S. economically soon will. I'm not sure what the current numbers are. Um, and the very fact that um, so many Americans uh, believe, uh, whether they call it America first, whether they support, you know, the um, uh, uh, the high tariffs Donald Trump uh, tried to put, in some ways did put on American manufacturers. I mean, that uh, that shows a, a lack of confidence among a lot of Americans that we cannot compete, you know, with, with other nations. Uh, and also the very fact that most Americans don't want uh, to have American troops over, uh, abroad um, keeping the, you might say, the boundaries of the empire uh, intact. Um, there's bipartisan agreement that U.S. has been in Afghanistan too long, that troops should leave there as soon as possible. Um, um, Trump is, you know, detested by most Democrats, of course, but but the, very, the fact that he wants to pull all troops out of uh, Somalia, um, out of uh, other parts of Africa, out of the remaining troops we have in Iraq, uh, that's very popular. So, you know, uh, if you don't want to send uh, American forces overseas, as American forces have been doing um, um, pretty much, you know, continually one way or another uh, since World War One, uh, over 100 years now, uh, and you don't have popular constituency for doing that, um, you know, when you have the, you can still have the largest military in the world, but if you're not able to use it uh, to you know, promote the aims of your empire, then you can have a problem, I think. Uh, uh, you know, the U.S. still has military bases everywhere in the world, but those will begin to be rolled back too, I, I think, especially uh, if there's a lot of fear that, you know, the defense budget is much too large. And people on the left and the right agree about this, and this is unusual, because since uh, the Cold War uh, began in the late 1940s, uh, there's been pretty much unanimity, you know, was until the end of the Cold War, about the idea that except for you know, people on the far left, like me at the time in the 60s, who thought that it was a mistake to have a large military establishment, but most Democrats and Republicans thought it was just fine to have it. And after 9-11, uh, they agreed as well, we needed to have this new sort of national security uh, establishment, um, uh, a new cabinet department and so forth. Uh, but I think that's that support for that's waning. And that too is a sign of uh, a declining empire, I believe. I'd like to read a short quote from your book. Um, and diving in a little more to empire decline and these sorts of things. It starts with a, a quote from a person. I'm probably going to butcher his last name, so you'll have to help me out here. Um, Alexis de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville, yes. He was one of the okay. uh, French, a French visitor to the United States who was one of the leading commentators on America, actually, even though he was only here for a few months, but he wrote an incredibly influential book, which which um, if you were in a U.S. college in the 1950s, you would have heard of and read, but it's not read as much anymore. It's called Democracy in America. And really, it was, you know, one of the more influential um, books reflecting on American democracy that anybody's ever written. Uh, so interesting. Yeah, it often takes a somewhat outside perspective to, to come in with their own biases, of course, but a separate bias, not the localized yeah. bias. So, so he wrote, um, and then and then um, and you kind of comment on it. So he wrote um, that, or sorry, um, Alexis de Tocqueville observed during the childhood of the United States, Americans are, and these are his words, forever varying, altering, and restoring secondary matters, but they are, but they carefully abstain from touching what is fundamental. 
They love change, but they dread revolutions. And then your words here, through populism, Americans have been able to protest social and economic inequalities without calling the entire system into question. And that sounds like a really wonderful um, benefit of populism. I, I really like that approach. And so, but looking at it now, and, and this is through an untrained eye, of course, to me, it looks like we have two sides doing exactly what this passage says. Um, they're, but they passionately disagree on what is untouchably fundamental. And so do you believe this is a cause for concern when two sides believe in their own version of America? Yeah, I wrote that 25 years ago when Bill Clinton was in office. So, so, so centrism was, <laughs> was more popular than it is now, I think. Um, but I still argue actually that um, both sides do agree on some things. Uh, you see this with, with uh, Trump and, and many Republicans questioning the results of the election. I mean, someone like me, um, that's very scary and, and, and ridiculous, but they're, all, they're both arguing about the Constitution. This document that was written um, uh, almost 250 years ago, uh, which has been amended, you know, 27 or so times since then, but it's still with us in its basics, you know. Uh, we still elect pre the president through this crazy electoral college, you know, um, uh, which, which is completely undemocratic, really, and the, the Senate is even more undemocratic. Um, so, but both make their appeal to the Constitution. Uh, so that is one of the, the basics, you know, in America. Both believe that, um, you know, there were some socialists, you know, uh, obviously, and that socialism has grown to some extent uh, over the last few years as a ideology, popular with more, more and more people, especially younger people in America. But still, most people agree that, that a market system, a capitalist system uh, is the best system. Uh, and that's true of people, most progressives, even if they like that system to be reformed in many ways, and, and people on the right um, uh, who are much more pro-capitalist. Uh, so in that sense, I think um, even though we have very strong disagreements in America now, um, neither side wants to break up you know, the basics of the economic system and the basic structure of the political system. Um, uh, maybe, that, maybe they will if, if uh, the anger continues, maybe if, if it's because we fought out in the streets, but, but we're not at the, at the verge of having a civil war. You know? um, that's the only time, the civil war of the 1860s is the only time when the basic, you know, basic agreement of Americans about, about these things broke down. And of course, uh, three quarters of a million Americans died uh, on both sides. Uh, because of that, um, a huge, huge number given the population of 30 million. Um, so in that sense, yes, of course, I'm afraid. I don't like the fact that uh, uh, as left that, you know, Republicans seem to believe that uh, an election that Donald Trump clearly lost, he actually won. Um, uh, I also don't like that people on the left um, sometimes feel that uh, people who voted for Trump are are sort of illegitimate and fascists, uh, and people who uh, who they can have nothing to do with. Because I think uh, I do believe that that uh, for democracy in this country to be healthy, a majority of people have to agree on certain things. And and I would like it if majority of people, of course, agreed on a more progressive platform, uh, and that platform could be carried out, and we could make America a more egalitarian and democratic country. Um, but I don't think that we're yet. <laughs> at the point where these disagreements are fierce, um, are at the point of producing something you know you could call a real civil conflict, where people are are ready to kill one another in large numbers. Um, um, 
there. <laughs> uh, and if the empire uh, keeps declining in a certain kind of way and not not gently, uh, we could get there, but we're not there yet. What are what are some concrete things you would need to see to increase the the real worry of a situation like that? Uh, you want me to sort of uh, be be a doom and gloomer here? So, uh, well, no, well, no, no, not necessarily, yeah. but like, but like actual <laughs> actual things, because because you say you're not worried. Really I'm not worried now. Right now. I mean, look, you have to have a lot. Of, look, obviously. Um, you know, Mark Weber, the great German sociologist, said that the one thing that is that that that, that a state um, that, that differentiates a state from other 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 forms in society is that the state has the exclusive use of force. So, if you began to have armed militias, whatever you call them, on both left and right, uh, fighting one another, as some people thought you had in Portland, Oregon, for a while, you know, with a People call themselves Antifa, fighting some right-wing militias. Maybe the Proud Boys were part of that, uh, but that didn't last long. And you know, yes, some people died. In you know, somebody died in Kenosha, Wisconsin, as you know, uh, um, uh, coming out of one of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations. But you know, that was isolated instances. But if we really had people <coughs> organizing as militias, arming themselves, uh, going to war with one another. Um, as you have in other countries, of course, you know, many other countries. Um, um, uh, or you have people sort of deciding, as some people on the right tried to do in the 1990s, that they're going to sort of declare free areas, you know, maybe parts of Idaho or, or some part of rural Texas, I don't know, and, and no-go areas for, for federal forces, let's say. Um, and, and you had millions of people on the right, let's say, rallying to support those places, uh, saying, you know, don't try to come in here and enforce your constitution over here, you know. Um, then then we have a serious problem, but that hasn't happened yet. Uh, right now, both forces are competing for national power, and they're doing it for the most part <clears throat> through um, legal constitutional means. Um, as long as that's true, as long as that's true, we'll have, <clears throat> this will be seen as another incident of what we've had in a lot of times in American history, very, very sharp divisions uh, between partisan forces. And I can spend lots of time, more time than we have, talking about those other instances, early instances where that's happened, where we had a lot of fears uh, at the time, people had a lot of fears at the time, that you would have a civil conflict, that this would break down into another civil war. Um, uh, that happened after pres during and after presidential elections uh, several times in, in American history, but it didn't happen. Um, and I don't think it's going to happen again, but again, we'll see. And so what are some of those past examples that you can draw on and, and somewhat overlates it today to give, give a little bit of hope that we're, you know, we're not, we're not going there. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, uh, 1800, um, uh, when there were very few people voting, very few people in the country, uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, won the election. Uh, uh, he was elected by the house of representatives because we had this you know weird system where the house gets to vote, gets to elect the president. Um, if uh, nobody wins a majority in the Electoral College, uh, nobody won a majority in the Electoral College. There weren't really strong parties yet. Um, he defeated the incumbent John Adams, and people were afraid that um, if Jefferson was not elected, uh, his people would um, march on Washington and sort of take it over <laughs> uh, and throw Adams out of office. Uh, if he didn't leave office, that didn't happen. Uh, uh, in uh, 1896, uh, William Jennings Bryan, the guy who wrote a biography about, uh, called The Godly Hero, who I mentioned before, 
Uh, he was a candidate of both for the People's Party, the Populists, and the Democrats. Um, and uh, he had support also from a lot of socialists, like Eugene Debs, uh, one of the most uh, famous socialists in American history. Um, and pretty much everyone disgruntled on the left in America uh, supported uh, Brian. Um, and uh, Republicans, especially those who were, who had, were employers, uh, big businessmen, uh, told some of their workers, uh, if Brian wins, don't come to work on Monday because uh, we're going to go on what's called a capital strike. Uh, uh, you know, I'll, we'll lay you off because I can't do business with this crazy uh, popocrat they call Brian. And, and some, called it an, some called him an anarchist uh, um, because um, the Democratic platform at the time uh, opposed sending in federal troops to, to crush strikes as a federal troops had done uh, to a railroad strike in 1894, which Eugene Debs had actually led. Um, there are more history than you need, but uh, well, Brian did not win the election. Uh, William McKinley, the Republican, won the election. Um, and uh, Brian's people did not protest. And Brian, you know, as most um, losing candidates have done, telegraphed uh, at the time, telegraphed uh, McKinley and said, congratulations, the American people elected you and I wish you well. Um, so um, 1968, uh, when there was a lot of uh, uh, rebellions taking place in the streets after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed uh, that spring, a lot of anti-war demonstrations, some of which had uh, some people broke away from them and uh, committed some violence. 1968, <coughs> um, the war in Vietnam was going on. It was unpopular more and more. Uh, and there were three candidates in that election, three major kind of candidates. One, George Wallace, a, a segregationist and racist governor of Alabama, um, ran, uh, you know, used a lot of violent rhetoric, much as uh, as as Trump has uh, sometimes during his presidency. And he he basically he he almost got enough electoral votes not to win the election, but to deprive Richard Nixon of the majority electoral votes, which would have thrown the election to the House of Representatives. And if that had happened, <clears throat> Wallace would have would have um, required some concessions, you know, to give his votes. He had a lot of Southern Democrats who would have supported him, uh, his votes to either uh, Republican Richard Nixon or the Democrat Hubert Humphrey. Uh, one of those would have been probably to repeal the Civil Rights Act. Uh, a lot of people, not just black people, would have been rather unhappy with that. And you could have had a lot of violence in the streets if that had happened. Um, but again, it didn't happen. And Nixon did win a majority electoral vote narrowly. Um, and so it didn't happen. So really, and this in time too, you know, um, where I live in Washington D.C., some several of the buildings were um, uh, were boarded up. Uh, several of the storefronts were boarded up uh, before the election, as people uh, probably heard, because there was a fear that if Trump either won the election uh, narrowly, which was the only way he was going to win it, or um, as has happened, in fact, uh, lost the election but claimed he won and refused uh, to admit that he. Uh, there'd be violence uh, in the streets of Washington and maybe other cities as well. But it didn't happen. And uh, several days after the election, uh, the Saturday afterwards, as everyone knows, um, the uh, election was certified in enough states for Joe Biden. And so, you know, we had people like me who supported the Democrats had a, you know, kind of a little party and prompt party in the streets here uh, next to some of the boarded up windows. Uh, and uh, so nothing happened. So, you know, rightly or wrongly, uh, most Americans, I think, even most supported Trump, you know, they'll protest, they yell about it. They are very unhappy when someone they 
think is going to be a terrible president um, uh, gets elected. Uh, but in the end, they don't commit violence. The one difference, of course, was in 1860 when Abraham Lincoln got elected with less than 40 percent of the popular vote. Democrats had two different candidates who disagreed very much about you know what should happen. Uh, so Lincoln was able to get a majority of the Electoral College. And after that happened, uh, 11 Southern states uh, uh, seceded from the Union. And uh, the Civil War broke out uh, a month, a little more than a month after Lincoln was uh, inaugurated uh, as president, 1861. So that's the only time uh, when the political differences in the country became so bitter, so impossible to reconcile that, of course, uh, we had uh, a civil war. One one note I'd like to end on is the idea of trust, and it it can go many different directions. And so there, this the idea that we need to trust each other, we need to trust the system, we need to trust certain institutions. There seems to be a breaking down of trust. Um, and if you have just any general thoughts on that or any specific thoughts on that, where, how do you think we can get back this trust? Or if we keep declining as an empire, do you think it's just historically, it just looks like it just keeps fragmenting further? Yeah, well, we'll see, you know, I mean, the US, unlike other empires, uh, not all, but many other empires, uh, has always been a very heterogeneous country, you know, um, Native Americans, uh, white settlers, uh, of course, African Americans, most of them came as enslaved people, lots of immigrants from all over the, country, all over the world. Um, and the only thing which holds Americans together, um, well, perhaps we'll see, uh, is, as I said before, the idea of progress, of economic progress, of things are going to get better. Um, I think a, a shared sense of ideals that America is a pretty free place, that, that people choose their their leaders and uh, people respect uh, the choice when that happens, uh, which might be breaking down. Um, uh, after Trump's loss. Um, and, uh, you know, I think if people uh, stop actually, you know, um, uh, um, having any cultural experiences in common, uh, if, 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 you know, people who like to watch, you know, uh, what's it called, One American Network, uh, and maybe Fox. So Fox is becoming, you know, alarmingly centrist for too many, too many uh, Trump people now. But you know, uh, you know, instead of right wing talk radio, right wing uh, cable uh, news, and just will never watch anything else. Um, and the other side, if people only watch MSNBC or CNN and listen to NPR, um, uh, read you know, New York Times, Washington Post, you know, um, so-called you know liberal media, um, then. Uh, and there's no anybody who talks across those boundaries, uh, then, then that will certainly increase mistrust. Um, that's beginning to happen. It's not happening as much, I think, as people, uh, as people think. There's still people who disagree with one another on, on these um, outlets, at least some of them. <coughs> um, and also, I think, um, again, as talked about before, if, if uh, what's happening now with the election uh, continues to happen and and people lose an election, just say, I didn't lose. It must be illegitimate. Uh, and that is not just a thing that Trump, who's a, uh, an awful president, but a very um, uh, brilliant showman, a very brilliant performer. Uh, if, if this uh, way of doing politics um, continues uh, after Trump does leave office, which I think he will, um, uh, 
then that that'll be serious because um and it's happened in other countries too if if nobody trusts the other side and there's two, only two sides and you feel like you can't get anywhere uh whether jobs or in your you know religious or, or cultural life uh and people don't know anybody anymore in their family or anybody in their families who's on the other side then that in effect becomes two nations you know um two societies uh not two societies you know legally and politically but two societies in fact uh i think we're pretty far from that now as i mentioned but i think uh that would that would uh and, and then and then people would assume you can't trust people on the other side uh so again maybe because i i've grown up you know uh uh in a society where there was a lot more trust than there is now um it's hard to believe that that will happen um but you know if if we suffer a, a great depression if you have this pandemic is in um say a year from now followed by another one <laughs> uh pandemic and there's no vaccines to do away with it i mean you know the pandemic obviously has made things worse. I mean, that's obvious, you know, in terms of trust. Um, the very fact that you have people who think it's you who are willing uh, to march on state capitals with guns in hands to protest um, being told they have to wear masks, you know, um, if they go inside a building. I mean, that, that is a you know a level of mistrust that we haven't seen in, in a while, you know. But again, we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll see if that continues. Well, yeah, we'll we'll just keep watching and trying to figure out as this thing goes. Um, it's it's definitely an interesting time, not not to make light of the the very challenging times we're living through, but it's it is fascinating in one sense all these forces that are play in our world right now. Um, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been a fun conversation. I. Um, I feel like I gleamed a little bit of your historical knowledge. It must run so deep. I can't even imagine. I'm going to have to check out that new book that's coming out. Um, okay. Maybe. Oh, you check out the old ones too. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> the popular book. I know that. So, yeah. Well, so is there, is there a place people can find you on social media or some of the books you mentioned? Sure. Uh, well, I'm on Twitter, uh, obsessively perhaps, at MKZen. Uh, MK I don't do Facebook. I just, I felt bad. I wasn't friending people. Uh, <laughs> um, and I just, with it. I'm not on Instagram, you know, I'm 72 years old. So it's, my photos aren't that interesting. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, you can also, all my books are on Amazon, um, they're all on Kindle, I believe, except maybe the first one. Um, so you can find it that way. And of course, uh, uh, you can check me out through, I have a, a website uh, through the Georgetown History Department as well. So that's uh, www.georgetown.edu. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Brad. Here at the Empire's New Clothes, we believe something big is in America's future. But we don't quite know what. If you'd like to continue the journey with us, like, subscribe, and let us know who you want us to interview next in the comments below. This next decade is going to be crazy. So join us as we try to figure out what's going on, and I look forward to seeing you next week.